This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. another episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. My name is Kanchanate Porirak, and I am here with two wonderful graduate students from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies and our wonderful guest, Dr. Michael Dwyer. So let's introduce and welcome our guest first. Thank you so much. Thanks for, for having coming. me. He is illustrious in his field. <laughs> he is a geographer, um, hailing from Indiana University, received his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. And he's here to talk about two latest books in his uh, CV. Only only books in my CV. Oh, okay. Well, I was tooting your horn. Thank you. (laughs) But so uh, two books titled Turning Land into Capital and Upland Geopolitics. So without spoiling it, um, let's introduce the co-host from NIU. Yeah, I'm uh, Tom Brown. I'm a second-year PhD student in history, uh, but I also specialize in uh, Cambodia and Southeast Asia during the Cold War. Um, And I am particularly excited for this discussion because a lot of my recent research is focusing on the sort of social and environmental consequences of development in Cambodia. Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm Mitchell Riegert. Uh, I'm a master's student in anthropology and... uh, um, my field work involves uh, working with a, a Karen community in Thailand, a subsistence producing um, c- a Sweden agricultural community. And so these issues that, um, that we'll be talking about are very relevant, and I, I hope to be able to add, add any input. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Tom, for the invite. Yeah. yeah, thank you everyone for being here. It's been a while since we've been in the studio, so I'm happy to be back as well. So... Let's get right into it. Um, we'll call. Can I call you Dr. Mike? Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll use the Thai yeah. uh, practice of calling you Dr. Mike. That's great. So without making too many land puns in geography, <laughs> give us the lay of the land um, of these books. So we have Upland Geopolitics and Land into Capital. The lecture that you gave us today mostly focused on turning land into capital and that process kind of uh, creating that equal sign between the two words, right? Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. arrows, if you will. So right. what's happening? Why does land need to be turned into capital? Is it only happening in the uplands? And where in the world is this happening? Right. Wow. Um, where is it not happening? It's probably where I would start. Um, Thankfully, we don't try to take that on in the in either of these books. Um, these books both come out of a collective engagement with scholars, development practitioners, civil society folks, activists, um, to some degree regulators um, in Southeast Asia. Um, and they're more or less a response to the boom in large-scale land deals um, that took off in various places around the Mekong region, sometimes like in Cambodia in the 90s. Um, in Laos, it was more like the early 2000s. 
And a lot of this stuff started to get recognized as a coherent phenomenon. You sometimes hear the term the global land rush around 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, and there's been a lot of scholarly and non-scholarly discussion of this and responses. Um, and both of, the, both of the books, so Turning Land into Capital at a Mekong region scale and Upland Geopolitics at a Laos scale, but still looking regionally in terms of thinking about things that happened in China, say, um, are both trying to understand what happened and especially understand some of the unevenness, um, both socially and also geographically. Um, so they deal with the uplands, but they also deal with the lowlands. Um, and a lot of what we do, especially in the edited volume, Turning Land into Capital, um, is to sort of compare upland and lowland landscapes um, within and between different countries in the region. This was uh, the first important sort of breaking the ice step of realizing that we, yes, we have microphones in front of us, but this is very much conversation. Um, can, could you unpack a little bit like the um, the ways in which, like the, I guess the rhetoric behind how land and capital became separated, right? Because you talked mm. about like the Laos hydropower sector. Yeah. Um, could you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> um, well, I think the way that we open the book is sort of taking issue with the classic, the neoclassical economic framing of land and capital as separate factors of production. Um, and we do that by riffing off of both allow government policy um, that is called turning land into capital, Han Tidin Pintun, and also grounding that in an example from the hydropower sector where um, the government of Laos used the estimated value of the Tun River um, for producing hydropower, as well as the estimated or planned costs of resettling communities from the reservoir area and all the lost biodiversity and all of the essentially mitigation um, and compensation costs, and turn that into a uh, what's the a share of what's the word I want blank? They had to convince their financers, right? And that, well, that was part of it, wasn't it? They had to get. Um, they didn't want simply a private consortium to own and operate this dam. They actually wanted uh, a, an ownership stake. So they actually used the value of this. Um, typically, if you're going to buy into a company, you need to contribute capital, right? And usually capital means money, right? Because it's going to be operating costs. It's going to be investment costs. Um, and so the law government's um, strategy in hydropower, but also across agriculture, plantations, mining, has been sort of a... Um, a narrative that you hear across the global South um, from governments who say we're cash poor and resource rich. So we're going to use the value of our land to buy into this consortium and actually get an ownership stake. So we talked about how, even if you're used to thinking of land and capital as separate factors of production, this was one example of, of many in which um, Laos was from a business perspective, successfully turned into capital. And it has lots of social and environmental costs. And in part, that's what the book is about. Well, and I, I think this really plays into another really uh, crucial part of the book, which is that you guys have adopted this regional approach. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a foundation of the book throughout. And I think it ties into this, that the, the relationship between land and capital gets very fuzzy. And when you get into the specifics of thinking about all, that's, all the actors and processes involved in that, um, I think this relates to why you guys also took a regional approach. And in, in chapter five, there's this, uh, I love the language used uh, talking about this like invisible flow. And I think 
for me at least, it can be easy or, or I guess um, tempting to think of some of these contestations over land ownership or, or titling rights or um, sort of these issues as like, oh, the United States or, or a power like China versus the sort of state government. But as the regional approach shows, there's so many transnational components associated with that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I guess I think it would be worthwhile to sort of, as, as we are diving into this relationship between land and capital, what about the intra-regional relationships? Right. right. Who, are all the, who are all the players, all the chess pieces, <laughs> if you will, in this <clears throat> land-grabbing story? Um, there are, so to start with Tom's question about the, some of the transnational, a lot of the transnational actors are companies, um, but often companies that are facilitated via bilateral government relationships. Um, so in my chapter on Laos, as well as in the monograph, um, I talk about Chinese investment in the rubber sector, look, looking at Laos. There's Thai investment um, in sugar in Cambodia that animates a number of the land deals um, that show up in a couple of the chapters. Um, there's Vietnamese investment in the rubber sector um, that has driven a lot of conversation around land grabbing and land deals in Laos and Cambodia. There's Thai investment in Myanmar in um, in various ca- uh, cash cropping, probably other stuff too. There's a lot of lot of companies, um, and then a lot of the actors themselves um, are also local local government. And so I think part of what we try to do is to get at the complexity that exists within all of these states, so as to not sort of replicate the methodological nationalism of um, at least talking about China this or Thailand that or Laos this. And how, how do you get, as a researcher, how do you get access to seeing kind of what's behind the curtain, if you will, especially right. as, as a, a Western researcher? Right, right, right. Um, for me, it was um, a process of stumbling around and waiting. Um, I initially went to Laos to try to study hydropower. Um, so... It wasn't my choice to start the book with the hydropower example, but I'm, I love it. I'm glad that we did. Because um, when I saw that example, I was like, yes, this is, this is my roots in trying to be an academic in mainland Southeast Asia. I initially went to the region to try to follow the World Bank. Um, mm. And while I was waiting and waiting and waiting for permission to go study this big hydropower project, I dallied and met some other people who were studying land governance uh, around a road project up in northwestern Laos that had nothing to do with hydropower. And it was through them and through those landscapes and relationships that I ultimately connected with a regulatory agency in Laos that was actually trying to inventory land deals that were being um, conducted, but often not reported or at least not reported at a level of detail that was sort of regulable um, by local governments. Um, and so this is, you know, f- following up on the, the players, a lot of the players that show up, especially in the, the things that I see in Laos, um, are these um, multi, multiple levels of the state. Um, so provincial authorities as uh, doing a lot of the deal making, district authorities often caught in the middle between trying to, you know, follow or implement some provincial plan and being accountable to the communities that they deal with directly and that many of them are from. Um, and then the provincial governments often kind of go two directions. Sometimes they're more aggressive than the central level, and sometimes they're actively pushing back against the, um, the, the negative implications of some of these investment cooperation deals. Um, and so in the monograph, one of the things that I do to sort of f- 
open the book is to talk about a struggle between the provincial government in the northern Lao province of Luang Nam Ta and Chinese companies um, over whether or not to grant large-scale land concessions, because originally the government didn't want to do it. Ah, so what changed? Um, implementation changed <laughs> um, in that there was essentially a, an effort to, to try to create protective development models at the policy level and yet still make something work in practice. Mm. Um, and so the way that I tell the story in the book was that those protective models didn't actually have terms that were favorable enough to farmers for the farmers to want to participate. So low participation in the sort of theoretically pro-smallholder contract farming model led to pressure on weaker communities to essentially give up land um, in order to fill the area quotas. And so that's how these contract farming deals on paper turned out turned into quasi-concessions in practice. Is, is there a sense on the ground that there is a narrative that maybe the Lao government wants to be told about this process? Is there that sense in the media? Is there that sense kind of with the, the people who are being affected that the story it's there's always a story mm -hmm. right and and the book tells a version of the story is mm -hmm. there another version of the story you that might be codified in the history books speaking as a historian right mm. how 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 are they going to interpret this or what what records of it is going to be left moving forward i think you know we were talking about thailand we were talking about cambodia i think the same thing applies to laos the government is, is always um, a caricature of the way that rule happens. Um, all of these countries um, face ongoing struggles over modes of government. Um, in Laos, um, and I think you see this really in Cambodia as well, there's real tension between the sort of crony capitalism, neo-patrimonial, you know, connection-based ways that you access land and turn land into capital versus the formal legal regulatory um, institutions that have processes and rules and, pr and prohibitions and that require things like, you know, you have to do a detailed survey map before you break ground and you have to then follow whatever your map says. Um, so a lot of what I do in my research is to sort of follow the mapping process and then talk to people about it um, to try to see what's on the map and see what le gets left off the map. Um, but I think that in... Thinking in, in terms of your question of what does the Lao government want or need to hear, there is no single Lao government in that sense. Mm. There's a struggle between, I would say, um, technocratic regulators who are trying to actually do a decent job under very difficult circumstances of having to compete with Cambodia and Thailand and Myanmar for what is often a race to the bottom in terms of making land accessible at cheap rates, tax breaks for investors. Um, tax breaks on exports, um, and on the other side, the patronage economy that exists through extractive sectors throughout the region. Um, but I think it's hard to look at any economy or any state in the region and not see some version of the, that tension. So I think there are some people who want to hear it and some people who don't. That's, that's fair. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Well, and I... You know, in in your in your chapter on Laos, you're talking about sort of these these processes. But one thing that um, sort of applied to the research that I've done on land ownership in Cambodia 
So in pre-colonial times in Cambodia, and this was the same in Myanmar, um, sort of there was like a squatter's rights kind of uh-huh. system uh-huh. where the the king or the central authority sort of owned all the land, and as long as you worked the land, uh, that you, you had the right to continue living and, and working on that land. Colonial regimes come in. Yep. They implement private property rights. Yep. And so I can't help but notice that some of this uncertainty about land ownership, for instance, like in the, in the case of uh, Laos, you know, your chapter on Laos, that it's not just uh, uncertainty about who, who's owning the land in terms of like smallholder farmers, but also that there's this weird mix of the state involvement and private property rights, especially in the, like, um, you know, the, the economic land concessions in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Of, of, and so I guess um, maybe expand uh, in the in the case of Laos, how that plays a role in sort of also recognizing how difficult of a process this <laughs> is. Yeah, <clears throat> I think well, ownership is never well defined. It's 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 an empirical question about what it means to own a piece of land. And so your example of, you know, this land was owned by the king and now it's owned by the state mean very different things. So when land was owned by the king, it was you know, especially in the context that you're talking about, it was still developable through rights of occupation and possession by smallholders. Today, when land is owned by the state, Cambodia explicitly cut that off and said that was all good up until 2001, and now it's not. Now allocation of land, now state ownership of land means that the state reserves the right to allocate that. Sometimes they're going to allocate it to an investor. Sometimes they might allocate it to an indigenous community, they might allocate it to a social land concession, they might give it through a title. But one of the things that really struck me about conversations that I had um, when I was researching both the book for Laos, but also um, I've done some research on titling in Cambodia, is the miss, not miss, different understandings of what it means to actually give a title. Um, because if you talk to the lawyers, they will say a title is not a gift of a land right, a title is a formalization of a right that legally already exists. And if you talk to lots of other people, including a lot of government officials, and if you listen to how they talk about titling, it's very much a patronage operation where we are giving you a right that does not already exist. Then you have the, <clears throat> the category of people who don't have ownership title, but, but they use the land, and they, and they may have used the land for a very long time. For example, the community I work with in Thailand uh, it's a Karen community along the Thai Burma border, an upland community, mm-hmm. um, and they've maintained a practice of Swidden agriculture for, as far as their oral history goes, 350 years. And to this day, they don't have ownership mm-hmm. rights over that land. In fact, it's National Forest Reserve, 90 percent of the ter- the territory. So, right. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about how that category fits in with the ownership and titling, and then the state-owned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's this saying, and um, Christian Lund, who's uh, property scholar from, I don't know, he, he's worked in West Africa. He wrote a great book recently on Indonesia that's called Nine-Tenths of the Law, but it's reflecting this saying that possession is nine-tenths of the law. And so you've got the communities that you're talking about may not formally own that land, but the fact that they've been using it means that it's actually kind of difficult for state ownership to be enforced because right. it means that you have to undertake an act of violent eviction in order to k- kick people out. At least if they don't leave voluntarily, which many Thai communities have already shown that they're not going to do. 
So this this process of codifying and formalizing ownership, mm-hmm. right, through mm-hmm. titling is essentially um, what we're describing here. Has there been an effort to educate, quote unquote, I'll put that in air quotes, the people of what it means to own land, right? So I'm, I'm yeah. thinking of parallel situations um, where West, oftentimes Westerners come into contact with indigenous population and saying, who owns the land? And that's within the context of local culture. It doesn't make any sense. Right? Yeah. So it sounds yeah. like it's this land title is having that same situation. And so is the Lao government or the Cambodian government trying to, quote unquote, educate people of what it means to own land and, quote unquote, develop <laughs> land in order to implement this titling plan? Well, I think there's a couple of levels of ways to answer that question, and it kind of depends what you mean by title in the first place, because that determines how far back in history you go, right? Everybody talks about the Khmer Rouge destroyed all the land titles in 1975. Um, The titles that they destroyed were not the same titles that are issued by the... um, Ministry of Land Management, um, with initially with support from the World Bank that started in the 90s and really sort of took off. Um, the ones that are, you know, titling as it has, as it's often understood today, typically reflects things that have only been going on since the 90s. And in practice, it's not the first formalization of property rights that most people encounter. Um, very often, when t- the titling teams come to town, um, there are already functioning land markets that are working in those places and they're based on paper and contracts. They just use local tax receipts and those local tax receipts will have a very clear description of where the land is. They might have a little parcel map. They might have what's called a meets and bounds description, which is like, well, this person's land is on one side. There's a tree over here. It borders a stream. They're georeferenced, but they're not georeferenced with GPS points that can be located in a single cadaster. And so a lot of what's going on with the titling efforts of the last 25, 30 years has been an effort to centralize control in a very technical sense over what ownership means. Because land ownership is, and even the idea of title in a general sense, is not new in, in you know most of the world, including most of these landscapes. What is new is having your parcel of land geo-referenced to the point where the central government can tell whether or not the district has kept some of the tax money that it should not have. Ah. So a lot of this stuff is about internal ongoing state formation in terms of the politics of land rent and being able to figure out where's the money going. But then um, um, just, just, just a question yeah. uh, feeding off of that. What about the, like the sort of bottom up uh, an initiative? I know you mentioned the, uh, the, I think it's the communal land use planning, the, the community mm-hmm. who had the mapping project. Yep. This relates to my research. It's something the young people are doing in yep. the community I study. Yep. Um, so, what, yeah, what's the important importance of that, you know, sort of bottom-up for, formalizing? You know, yeah. Uh, well, part of, part of the, I think, titling is often talked about as a very technical thing. Kind of top-down. Sometimes it's yeah. top-down, but, it, I mean, it's, yeah, it's usually delivered by some land agency that says this is what a title looks like, this is the methodology for doing it, um, but there's an intensely and deeply political question that underlies and often gets sidestepped by those efforts to, as you put it, educate people about what titling is, um, and that is sidestepping the question of 
whether land can be sold or not. Um, and under many titling schemes, especially titling schemes that um, map and title land at the individual scale, the answer to that is yes. Like the whole reason that we're doing this is so that people can sell their land if they want to, and specifically so they can mortgage it, so that a bank would be able to resell it if they were to use the land to collateralize a mortgage and then not be able to pay that back. Whereas um, if a bank didn't have something that they could, you know, it's one thing for me to be able to sell land to my neighbors, and it's another thing for a bank to try to sell that same land to the same neighbor if they don't have the same social relationships. Titling is essentially a way to replace those social relationships with something on paper and something that's mechanized. Um, but if you look, you know, within Southeast Asia and just historically, there are major, major prohibitions on selling certain types of land to certain people. And so there's often prohibitions against selling it to outsiders. You see this reflected in national laws about foreign land ownership, but that's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of many communities um, have historically not wanted land sold to outsiders. And titling essentially rides roughshod over that entire set of politics and prohibitions around who can access land under what conditions, who can pass it on, who can use it for what kinds of profit making, what are the communal claims on the benefits that come off of that land, and what are the options for redistribution. And so in many ways, this effort to educate people about what titling means is very much an effort to communicate a certain model of um, not only land ownership, but even more importantly, land transfer that um, often takes communities out of the conversation. And so the way that things like the communal land use planning process come out is those aren't titles. Um, they're, I would say, functional. If they work, they're kind of functional equivalent of communal titles. And this is where collective title is usually not saleable. And right. so this is, this is where the formalization um, contestation really comes down is if you have a map, is it showing something that can be sold or that's not allowed to be sold? Um, and that has implications both for essentially elite politics within communities, um, but often for politics um, outside uh, with, with outsiders as well. I didn't realize I was going to have such a close relationship to what you're talking about because I just inherited land there you go. in Thailand and having gone through this whole process. Oh yeah. Of, and so the, so our parcel because of my inheritance was the first time it got GPS markers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they were, they're going through it in this new way. They're trying to make finite borders yep. of kind of this, more or less malleable agreement of where I begin and where my neighbors begin right. um, through the act of sales, through mm -hmm. the act of inheritance, yep. through the act of transfer. So now I know exactly, as opposed to, you know, before my grandma or my grandpa was like, well, that banana tree there. And I'm thinking, how long do banana trees live? You know, <laughs> has, uh, there, has there always been a banana tree <laughs> to right. mark the borders, right? right? So that's very, as you're explaining it, I'm like, oh, geez. I'm participating in this process of, of yeah. formalizing. I don't know how I, I feel about it now. I have to tell a story here, though, because <laughs> as a geography teacher, one of my favorite books to talk about is um, the book Siam Mapped by Tongchai ah, yes. Winishkun. Um, and one of the, I love that book. It's so good. One of the, it's one finally of the, just translated into Thai, y'all. It's about time. I, good it, Lord. Well, hey, yeah. as a translator, <clears throat> it takes yeah. a long time, okay? Fair. <laughs> one of the things that he talks about is the different understandings 
in the, I guess it was early, mid-1800s, over what it meant to demarcate a border. Because the Siamese were like, why would you possibly want to demarcate a border with friends? Only enemies need borders, right? And this whole question of, you know, is your land well mapped or not, is now very much a taken for granted thing. Um, but if you have a good relationship with your neighbor, who cares? You know, it's only if you want to sell it, then you got to know where it is. Or right. if you're if you're fighting over that banana tree, <laughs> then you want to know whose tree it is. But if you're sharing the banana tree, and if you're not trying to sell the land or mortgage it, nobody really needs those boundaries. No harm, no foul. Yeah. Exactly. There's... And also, FYI, Colonial Powers, if you're listening... People live on both sides of the river, yeah. okay? Moving forward, please stop using rivers <laughs> to demarcate your uh, political entity because people live on both sides. Okay, end of rant. Um, Tom, you were going <laughs> to yeah. say something before I had a PSA for colonizers. <laughs> um, very necessary. Um, <laughs> no, there's a, there's a story that, that David Chandler tells about borders that I think fits in really nicely here mm -hmm. um, that uh, Judy told me at one point. And essentially, uh, there was uh, up in the, I think it was the um, the northwest, or the sorry, the northeast province of Cambodia, there was a Cambodian farmer on one side and a Vietnamese farmer on the other side. And the border was marked by just these, like, lodestones. And, and each night, uh, the, well, it's told from a Cambodian perspective. <laughs> of course, so, of course. So, so each night, allegedly, uh, the Vietnamese farmer would, would, would push the, the lodestones further into the, the Cambodian territory. And then in the morning, the Cambodian farmer would wake up and move them back. And yeah. after, after so much back and forth of this, uh, the Cambodian farmer just took the lodestones away. So then there was no demarcation of the border and it was this more fluid, like now we can't. And so, and everybody lived happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> as Cambodians and Vietnamese yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as, yeah. But I think, but I think what the, what this is getting at, cause, cause I, I like this idea of bringing up Thong Chai when you calls, book and um, sort of formalization of land in general. Mm -hmm. And this is a, certainly a problem in Cambodia is that the formalization, especially of smallholder land is supposed to be part of this like growth with equ equity development. Right. It's supposed to sort of be this sort of equitable, okay, we're, it's a protection. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, pr it protects the land that you inherit. Yeah. And it means that it's not just all concession-based development. Exactly. But I think this is also tied into sort of a state's assertion of territorial integrity on a much larger scale. But mm -hmm. I, I'm, as the chapters um, sort of outline in, in several different points, but also in terms of my own research into Cambodia, this very often does the complete opposite of protecting or giving opportunities to the poor and actually is enhancing people who are already dominant actors, uh, which sort of gets into this transnational dialogue that we were talking about earlier. But I, I, I'm wondering how you see... Um, formalization both as maybe this protective measure, but also how it gets mm -hmm. exploited. Mm -hmm. I think it illustrates the truism that technology is sort of politically ambiguous. Um, I think titling can be used for good and bad. I've been thinking about this recently in the context of teaching. Infra connective infrastructure like railways, um, roads can be used for good and bad too. It, it really depends on the social system in which they're operating. Um, but I think there is a real fetishization of titling. This, I, I wrote a paper in 2015 called The Formalization Fix that there has been, and I think this has been pushed by um, development institutions from the West that really are thinking in terms of 
lowering transaction costs to markets. Like we just need to make the property rights transparent. That'll lower the barriers to willing buyer, willing seller transactions, right? Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that, that I think I, I think it's it's worth pushing back on. But I think that's where a lot of this stuff is coming from. So what, looking forward, if we have the big picture of what's happening um, in mainland Southeast Asia with the formalization of land ownership and titling, looking forward, what what's the best case scenario? for Ooh. small landholders and what's the worst case scenario Ooh. at the trend that it's <laughs> happening now it's very hard to talk about trends i think one of the things that i've seen in laos has been um essentially some externally driven some internally driven pushback on concession granting um, and there are a lot of caveats with that. There have been a number of moratoria that have been issued um, on concession granting. That doesn't mean that, con that the concessions have stopped, um, but there is at least, I think, more than conversation. There, there's substantive action around um, regulating concessions differently and better. We've seen this in Cambodia. Um, in Cambodia, it was very clearly tied to the election cycle. Um, I believe of 2013, when a number of concessions had their area reduced. Um, a couple were canceled, but a number of them had um, area reduced in ways that seem very clearly sort of tied to the performance around helping small farmers a year before the election. A lot of this you know, regulation is often performative. Um, doesn't mean that it's not substantive too, um, but it's, it's, it's worth looking at. Um, one of the things that I've been doing recently with a, with a Lao colleague is to try to do some estimations around um, the amount of land tax that could be collected from land concessions. Um, and so in terms of thinking about maybe not an op, I think an optimal future would be to go back and not have land grabs in the first place. Um, but given the grabbing has been done, I think there's a lot of opportunity to do some sort of restitution um, but the question is not only about political will, but it's about money. Um, and those two things are, are related. Laos, um, as at least some listeners of the podcast are likely to know, is in the midst of a financial crisis that has to do some degree with overborrowing and overspending mm -hmm. on infrastructure. But the flip side of that is has been undercollecting of, re of state revenue for things like taxation. Um, sometimes that's taxation on smallholder land. Often it's taxation on urban property of the wealthy, which is very valuable, <laughs> potentially high rent, um, and is often very hard to collect. Um, and potentially it's um, taxation on concessions, which are often very large, um, but which are, there's a, there's a lot of loopholes, there's a lot of non-enforcement. Um, but one of the things that um, we try to do in this new research is to give a rough estimate of the amount of money that's at stake just from looking at one sector. And so I, you know, in, in my book, I talk about the rubber sector and that's the, the sector that we stick with, but rubber is, is sort of like at the large end of the agribusiness sector, but it doesn't even touch mining or hydropower or things like that. Um, but I think using taxation in ways that don't just simply go to say urban infrastructure or plugging uh, a financial hole in a national budget, but actually were to go toward local forms of restitution 
for the kinds of harm that have been caused by those very same concessions would be to me a step in the right direction. Again, it's not, it's not necessarily justice um, in terms of undoing the original harm, um, but thinking about the ways that some of these technical efforts to try to keep better track of what's going on where could actually be mobilized into things other than just a nice map um, would be the kind of thing I would like to see. Um, people talk in Cambodia constantly about how you know all the concessions are basically illegal because there's a long list of things that you have to do in order to develop a concession, and most of them are not done. They just, you know, you get a map. Um, but there's supposed to be an inventory of the state public land versus the state private land that's inside that map, very rarely done, right? The smallholder lands are supposed to be excluded, and the state public land is supposed to be excluded. Again, not done because, you know, state public land is forest. Um, there's lots of regulatory possibilities. Um, I don't see that happening in the immediate term. Um, it's hard to, I don't know, it's hard for me to think about. Well, and, and, you know, with the case in Cambodia, something that complicates it even further is that, you know, as Cambodia is developing, it's very eager to have these sort of opportunities for outside companies mm-hmm. to, to, to come develop, to make concessions. concessions. Yeah. Right. And, and part of this also has to do with the fact that, like, for instance, in, in Thailand, like limits on dams and logging in the 80s, mm-hmm pushes Thai companies over into the border where there's an eagerness of saying, yeah, we'll, we'll take you. Mm-hmm. Same with Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You have an over-farming of the land, and so a lot of these companies are looking for more land to develop, and so it's spilling over, again, compounding this sort of regional problem. that This is right. not just right. state. It's not even bilateral relations between two states or even within states' um, contestations, but there, there's also this sort of transnational element to it that complicates it even further. Yeah. Geographers, geographers like to talk about the spatial fix. Um, and one of the, you know, the sort of the classic um, meaning of that is sort of going abroad expansionary forms to seek out new resources when you exhaust your resources at home. But one of the really clear also other versions of that is that you encounter social movements at home, even if the resources are still there. Um, and so we see this all across the region with these sort of expansionary looking, not looking you're, for cheaper. You're held accountable. Mm-hmm. Right it, at home, yeah. as opposed to abroad as a, a foreign entity. Yep, and there's a, there's often legal and extra legal privileging of foreign investment because it's seen as sort of a quick step to development, growth, social benefit, whatever you want to call it. Um, so that foreign investors have a huge advantage. It's very much the the ghost of the colonial economic model, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? The extraterrestrial privilege. Um, that you see. So one of the workaround in Thailand uh, for taxation is because the the property tax is that it's supposed to be protective. And you talk about this kind of the conflict between being protective and and being exploitative, right, of of small landowners. Mm -hmm. So the tax property model is, the property tax model is that if you have a parcel no larger than this, mm-hmm. you don't have to pay property tax. Yep. So then, of course, what everybody does is divide their land right. into exactly that a little below that threshold. Yep. And then they own title, 10 titles. Yep. Regulators right? call that salami slicing. You see it, it. Oh, there's a term. Oh, yeah. I love it. Okay. And you see it for land. You see it for other resources. Anything that has a minimum threshold, you just chop it up. You see that at camp concessions in Cambodia. 
So that's happening elsewhere as well. Oh, that is a time-honored tradition. Time-honored. But <laughs> it's it's why, you know, re and regulators try to get around that mm -hmm. using the sorts of state legibility tools that James Scott talks about in Seeing Like a State. Like, if you have a cadastral map and you have maps of family marriage relationships, you can put those things together and be like, oh, that's just your kid. Ah, you know? Or so that's you your brother-in-law. Like, salami slice if i may use the term right your land for your five children and just never pay taxes well people you can and people do but in there are tools to get around it if there's a political will to do it the question is where and again this gets back to this what i called the state formation politics before where does your desire for tax revenue meet your desire to keep your cronies happy mm. right and states have to do both of those things Right. And so Laos's financial crisis, just to take Laos, I think many states are probably in the similar situation, I would say have probably erred on the side of one, but are now starting to feel the squeeze of the other. Right. They've, Laos has been trying to increase its state revenue coffers from land taxation since the 90s. It was part of the you know bedrock justification for the first World Bank land titling project. Um, and they're still... They're still working on it. Can you describe a little bit, because we've talked a lot about land concessions, but we've never actually defined it. So mm -hmm. for those of us, yep. including me, yep. um, who's not familiar right, with the difference between titling versus concession Great. within the context of, of what you're talking about in mainland Southeast Asia, can you explain to us what yep. is a concession? What makes it a concession? Yep. A uh, concession is basically a monopoly. So... Concessions exist for land-related things, and they exist for non-land-related things. So the example I like to start with is um, if you have a concession to import Toyotas into Thailand, you're going to make a lot of money. So you have the monopoly right to do that. A land concession is a monopoly right to use a particular piece of land with the expectation that you're going to develop it usually for X. So land concessions are kind of like leases, um, but they usually apply slightly more narrowly um, in the sense that a government will give some legal entity, sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a business, um, a concession. And the expectation is that they will use that to develop some type of product within a certain time frame. And if they don't do that, the concession can be voided. Um, and so when Laos and Cambodia and I'm sure other places have done concession regulation and canceled some and reduced others, that's the kind of justification that they've used. Um, but it's it's basically just a, monopol a, a monopoly on use that's given by a state. So in addition to the tax revenue, is there any other revenue coming to the state then? From Yeah. 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 Um, often concessions make much more money on royalties. Um, which is a tax on the product that comes off of it. Um, one of the things that we talk about in this taxation work is that there's sort of a, a layer, um, and most La Laos's tax law, I'm sure, is typical. Um, there's no prohibition that says that, you know, your concession can only be taxed in one way. So often companies will have to pay a concession tax, which means they have to start paying essentially a land rental fee the day they get the land. And then when they start developing rubber, right, they start tapping the rubber trees, then they would pay an additional royalty on each kilogram of rubber that comes off that tree. Um, and then some other country, some other company, sorry, 
um, if they export that rubber out of Laos or Thailand or Cambodia, um, they might pay an export tax or a VAT kind of thing. So there's lots of different ways that these things can be taxed. Companies can have their profits taxed as well. But again, you, then you need a decent accounting system to figure out, is this company profitable? You know, are they hiding their profits? <laughs> um, but there's, uh, oh, I forget what it's called. Um, the internal shell gaming that, uh, oh, I teach about this. I should know, but I, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting <laughs> the term. If any of uh, your students are listening, please comment. Yeah. <laughs> um, lots, lots of different ways that, that, value that comes especially off public land right this the whole rationale for this in the first place is is that it is publicly owned and the state happens to be managing it but they're managing it on behalf of the citizenry of that country allegedly allegedly right um but that's where the legal basis that's where the legal authority comes from and so i think you know again thinking about better futures i think thinking about what is the legal meaning of this thing that we call a concession again we get back to this patrimonial versus statutory understandings of this. Does this mean that it's just the king's prerogative to allocate this to whoever they want? Or is the king acting on behalf of the people? Right? And I can go either way. I, this is, uh, and this gets really murky in the, Vietnam, the Vietnamese case mm -hmm. where you have these sort of uh, land to the tiller mm -hmm. policies that mm -hmm. now are now shifting to land from the tiller policies. Mm -hmm. Which just sort of brings up the, the question I had for you earlier in terms of I, I found it so interesting in the book that there Southeast Asia has uh, a very, um, I guess, uh, a strong history of having these socialist movements and socialist ideologies drive a lot of state decisions. Yep. And yet now we're seeing how those are being sort of transcended because these countries are like, we have to develop or we're going to get left behind. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to like grow our economy. Like these are actual concerns. Yep. yep. Um, and so I, I find this to be so, it's, it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a great new book that um, I would recommend. Uh, it's not particularly about Southeast Asia, but it's by Joe Gouldy and it's called The Long Land War. Um, one of the things, it does many, many things really well, but one of the things that it does is it reviews this so-called farm size debate that's been around for a long time. Um, and we do some of this in the, in the book as well. I think it's in chapter four of Turning Land into Capital. Um, the notion that large farms are somehow for, more productive and better contributors to GNP um, from a productivity standpoint is generally not true. From a state legibility perspective, if we want to talk about Scott, um, a lot of the preference for large plantations over smallholders may be that they're easier to keep track of, right? Um, but as countries like Thailand have shown, you can keep track of land taxes and you can make money off taxation. Um, Cambodia, I believe, doesn't have a smallholder land tax. Laos does. Thailand does. So you can do it um, with a bureaucracy and a lot, you know. A lot of bureaucracy. Lots like of bureaucracy. Vogon level bureaucracy. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what, bureaucracy is for is keeping track of this stuff. So it's, it's doable. Um, but the, just, I think the it's, it's important to question the notion that bigger is better when it comes to the scale of the unit that's contributing to the economy. Um, Thailand and China are fabulous examples, um, in the rubber sector, um, Malaysia as well of the importance and utility of small, of a smallholder model. 
the thing that Thailand and China and Malaysia have shown is that you have to support smallholders in the transition until their rubber becomes tap of tapping age, which is depending where you are, somewhere between six and 10 years. And it really helps if you have um, what's called a marketing board, which is a state institution that steps in and buys rubber at a fair price from farmers when global prices are low. Fair in air quotes. Yeah. Um, but better than what the global market is, is offering. Right. Right. Pre-speculative market prices. Yeah. And then resells it when the market gets high. Um, and there are going to, there, you know, there are debates about, you know, what's a fair price for the Thai marketing board to, to pay their rubber farmers. And there's been a lot of social contestation around that, um, spilled over into the rice sector and, and into, um, everything. Yeah. It's, it's turned into everything. It used to be rubber and now, and then it was rice and now it's everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think what's interesting and important about the Thai case is that it shows how common it is for the state to get between the farm gate price and the global commodity market. And that's not the case um, for a lot of smallholder efforts that have been tried in Laos. And so it's been really hard for Laos smallholders to, smallholders to make decent money um, because they haven't had those forms of social protection. So a lot of, I think there's some self-fulfilling prophecy when we talk about, oh, we need concessions in order to create growth. Um, it's not that a smallholder model is bad. It's that it needs to be supported in the short term. But in the longer term, it's actually um, potentially a lot more productive. This is so when I was uh, speaking to the Cambodian Indigenous Peoples Organization in Phnom Penh, they were essentially explaining the same thing. This is the argument that they were making is saying, hey, actually, these large scale high input farms might bring quick economic growth but are unsustainable and cause a lot of environmental destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like, like for instance, uh, you can, you can look at the, the Tonle Sap, uh, lake has been shrinking and shrinking over the last 20 years very quickly. Yep. And, but one of the things that they explain is they're saying like, Hey, we have sustainable methods for farming. It takes a little bit of time. Um, but in the long term, it's it's worked out. It's worked for right. generations. But front we end, lack front end investment, right? But we not only do we lack those social protections that you're talking about, but we're losing that land mm-hmm. more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was when I was talking, and, and this isn't just like a, a political or eco- economic issue. It's also a cultural issue too. It overlaps with the case of Myanmar, where these uh, concessions are are being used as sort of a battlefront to wage ethnic grievances and, mm-hmm. and antagonisms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's something that, that I've become very interested in is sort of like, okay, th- these these sustainable practices in the short term require more social protections, mm-hmm. but in the long term generate, as, as, as uh, your guys' book touches on, generates just as good development mm-hmm. uh, as these large-scale quick solutions. Mm-hmm. I think my, my read on this stuff in in general is that some type of state regulatory model that actually learns from and backs up those local and indigenous forms of land management is probably necessary, maybe not sufficient. Um, But, you know, I could have mentioned zoning before as a technology that can be politically ambiguous. It can be fabulous if you zone, you know, if you prohibit development in floodplains, you know. Um, But again, figuring out where the floodplains is, you would do well to ask the local farmers, right? Because they invest their labor based on, you know, at least past flood regimes. 
Um, and we can talk about changing water regimes as a result of all a bunch of stuff. Um, but looking to local knowledge as a guide for regulatory practice, I think is a, is a pretty good rule. So since we're talking about bot, kind of bottom-up efforts and, mm-hmm. and bottom-up perspectives, is there is there a movement given the global nature of concessions and players? Is there a sense that the local people, should they choose to um, resist, right, the, the things that are coming to them and their land, are there international organizations that are promoting certain practices for locals as kind mm-hmm. of their version of uh, philanthropy? And how is that interacting with what local governments are trying to do? I think part of this is, is um, you know, you see within the indigenous people's movement because fundamentally... that's getting globalized, right? Right, it's, right? It's, right, it's becoming globalized and it's being taken up in Thailand as well, um, although it's you know, adopted and then adapted to fit the the, the, the local and regional context. Um, but land is a is a huge part of that, you know, uh, ancestral homelands or lands we use or lands we have been using, you know, for long periods of time. Um, but in terms of, like, a specific global movement that has to do with, like, resistance to concessions, um, I'm, I'm not sure that I... Because um, there's always do-gooders, yep. and I put that in air quotes, yep. who are trying to help in air quotes, yep. right? How is that interacting with this, with the, the efforts of local governments and efforts of local groups prior to their involvement? It's a good question. I can give you maybe a tip of the iceberg answer. Um, I think maybe the place I'll start is, well, we were talking about coffee in Thailand <laughs> before. Not a global, I mean, a global commodity, but not a global movement, um, but one that is potentially creating incentives and means for communities to protect not only their land, but certain types of landscapes that are culturally value, valuable, like forested landscapes. Um, is that primarily using a legal model? No. It's, you know, probably they're going to be able to get title, but part of getting that title or some soft version thereof is about being able to show that this is development, this is profitable. This right. is sustainable. Modernizing Sweden agriculture. Yeah. The case of Mikey, you know, even yeah. showing that it is compatible with, with uh, you know, fighting the global climate crisis and things like that. You know? So there, there are global, yeah. global tie-ins in a couple of ways. Um, as far as the global institutions, um, I will mention one that um, I have not followed over the last couple of years, but that I was pretty excited when I heard about it, something called the Global Land Tenure Facility. And they... Um, were created based on the, I think, very good idea that communal titling um, is sort of on a per-person basis much, much cheaper than individual titling, but it doesn't tend to produce the kinds of payoffs in terms of tax uh, payments and even more importantly, land transaction fees, which is one of the main reasons, I didn't mention this before, that governments like individual titling programs because they can charge a registration fee. So not many only when fees, you, y'all. So many fees. Yes. And even, you know, to say nothing of the unofficial fees, the official fees, you get charged when you get a title and then every time there's a transaction, you pay a fee. So this is this is a stream of, you know, government taxation revenue. It's a, you know, it's a tax. Um, if you have 
a communal title that doesn't get sold and has a you know pretty low per unit area tax base because it's not you know kicking out tons of you know maybe maybe it would maybe it would enable the production of certain commodities that would then create royalty streams. So I'm not to say not to say that it won't. But it's not a bureaucratic. It's not a big moneymaker, right? And so, um, and if we look, Cambodia is a great example. Um, Laos is a, is a good example in other ways, in that the communal titling um, models that exist in Laos were forced into Laos by the World Bank in order to get approval for the Namton Two hydropower project, and haven't been seen since. Um, if you ask anybody in Laos, is communal titling possible? They'll tell you no, even though some exist. Um, C- Cambodia has a communal titling program, but it is very clear by the way that it's been mired in bureaucracy that the CPP is not really interested in rolling out communal titles. Um, and that was created essentially as a SOP to some version of civil society in the international community. Um, in the early 2000s when the land law was being rewritten. So it's discouraged through procedure. It's discouraged through procedure. The global titling facility um, was created for governments that were serious about actually granting title to communal and forested land for indigenous communities or other forest-dependent communities that said, okay, show us political will and we'll make it that financing isn't the barrier. Ah. So... That's, you know, that, that would be one small answer. But what that showed is they were essentially trying to, you know, call the bluff of governments that say, oh, this is just too expensive. We'd really like to do it um, and to take the, the cost out of the equation. But what's often the case is that whether for, for any number of reasons, governments are reluctant to um, grant large scale title to indigenous communities. I think Latin America is the is the big exception to that rule, and I think Southeast Asianists would do really well to look at what's happened in Latin America, um, both the positives uh, as but also the negatives. Wow, First, so you have to recognize indigenous people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good start. Um, <laughs> and uh, in 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 Southeast Asia, and I think much of Asia, it's it's, it's more problematic. Um, you know, uh, deba- considering debates whether or not the you know the global sort of uh, flexible definition of indigenous people applies and then trying to figure out who's indigenous and who's not and self-identification. And so there's a whole range of issues. And the just, burden of proof falls yeah, on the people. How do you yeah. justify it? It's it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. There, there's this hidden process before the formalization of land of sort of the formalization of identity mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and I know that that is a huge like bureaucratic barrier for SIPO in Cambodia that they're trying to, they've been hire, trying to hire lawyers and, and translators to try to work to get, you know, through this bureaucracy. But unfortunately, the concession rate is outpacing their of ability course. to right. keep up with this. Right. Almost by design. Yeah. And uh, like you said, you know, it, uh, you know the, it's sort of the uh, denial by procedure. Is that how mm-hmm. you said it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, like, yeah, it's, um, well, and to, to go back to your, point Mitch too about modernizing Sweden agriculture because I think so many of them are like look we would like to participate in the development of this land and if this is the channel you want to go but um you know the problem I'm finding that it's it's not the the giving of the the tractors that's like the problem it's who's who's driving the tractors and 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 uh <laughs> where is the actual output from the land going to and, and so there's all these then after the formalization problem as well Mm-hmm. And so, th- I I um, 
yeah, I just, again, to, to reiterate, I see how the sort of bureaucratic side of things really complicates it, and I think by design. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting if you look at, at the region of mainland Southeast Asia that it's almost like a snapshot of different stages, right? I, I don't see any government pioneering any new way of doing anything. They're just kind of like, well, that didn't work in Thailand. Or, mm-hmm. oh, dang, look at what's happening in Laos. That's not the, you know, so so it's it's interesting to, to see it as just, snapshots of of different stages uh-huh. of doing kind of the same thing right um and so i'm i'm curious as to how how that will work for for the little people as always um we are so we can talk about this all day um <laughs> but alas that i feel that would be holding our guests hostage <laughs> thank you for so having me. It's been a really you. fun conversation. Thank you for coming. So once again, we have two books. This is promo time. Yeah. We have two books that are out. Title, publication, where can we get them? Um, they're both out uh, 2022 from the University of Washington Press and the Culture, Place, and Nature series, which you don't even need to know. One is called Turning Land into Capital, Development and Dispossession in the Mekong Region. Um, that is co-edited by Phil Hirsch, Natalia Skura, Kevin Woods, and myself. Um, and then my monograph is called Upland Geopolitics, Post-War Laos and the Global Land Rush. Um, and yeah, University of Washington Press. Get them on the platform. Find them. Oh, yeah. let me do one more plug. Um, yes, the monograph is, is available uh, open access. So you can, Wonderful. you can go download it as a PDF file. You can read it flowable text online, which is cool because it will work on your phone. Um, and that is uh, courtesy of um, a grant that I got from um, my home university of Indiana University, so I want to shout them out. Um, but through a program that's called Toward an Open Monograph Ecosystem, which is also very cool because there are many books that are available on it. So if you're looking for good books, check out the Tome Library, and you can find it through JSTOR, Tome, a bunch of different places. Awesome. So we, we just search Tome, like T-O-M-E. T-O-M-E, yep. Nice. I love academic puns. Yep. Um, so you search Tome, Indiana University. You don't even need find... it. You don't even need okay. Indiana, U- Indiana University. There's a link to it um, on the University of Washington Press website. If you go to my book, there's little, you know, drop downs go under links. There's exactly one link. That is excellent. So for those of you who are listening, great way to assign his new monograph, Upland Geopolitics, Post-War Laos, and the Global Land Rush. For your classes, keep costs low for your students. Make your classes more equitable. Thank you again, um, Dr. Michael Dwyer, for coming to the cornfields and joining yes. us on the microphone. Thanks for Thank having you me. to my two co-hosts, Tom and Mitchell. And... Thank you for joining us for another episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantra Kun for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.